right. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Okay, that's a transportation crowd here. Come on. We gotta at least be excited about this, right? Um, I am uh, uh, Valerie McCall. I'm actually co-chair with our great leader here, Mr. Greg Evans, um, and Jim McDonald, who's here as well, of the National League of Cities Transportation and um, Transportation Infrastructure Committee. But I'm also immediate past president of APTA. Um, and so to be here to, today doing this joint session um, shows the partnership and, and the continuation of the collaboration between National League of Cities and APTA. Um, in my day job, I am the Chief of Government and International Affairs, as well as um, Acting Chief of Communications for the City of Cleveland underneath Mayor Frank G. Jackson. So APTA and NLC stand here today shoulder to shoulder to focus on the economic returns of public transportation investment. And for those of us who are here for both the APTA uh, legislative conference as well as the NLC meeting, we, we know that this is a subject matter that is near and dear at heart and really close on the radar. Um, and an infrastructure bill we know is coming sometime, how much we don't know, but we know it is coming, right? The check is in the mail. And our panel is here really to help rally around that, but most importantly to make the case for public transportation and to ensure that public transportation has a permanent spot in any legislative initiative. And those of you who were with us yesterday at the NLCT and I committee as well as the APTA Legislative Committee, this is what we've been talking about, this is what we've been focusing on. And while, before I go any further, I want to get a, give a plug for Patrick, who's here from CUTA. CUTA is our, our international Canadian partner in all the things that we do here. And we're very jealous of the money that um, <laughs> the president gave for infrastructure. Day one, he rode a bus on his first day with his administration. And that image, I did, that went viral. One, because it was an MCI bus. But two, um, because he took his whole cabinet and it showed day one how important transportation is. So Patrick, I'm going to embarrass you. Can you stand up, please? <laughs> he has money. <laughs> I'm just saying. They have great money set aside for and, and Patrick, by all means, please, as we go to Q&A and talk about this, jump in there and be a part of the conversation with us because we're, we're brother and sister partner organizations and now NLC is the other brother that you didn't meet yet, but now we're all together, okay? All right. Um, the recent infrastructure report card by the American Society of Civil Engineers graded transit a D minus, the lowest grade of any sector. And, and while Greg and I were joking about, you know, a D is barely passing, sometimes that looked good when you were in college, his point was a very good point. It's a failing grade. And this reflects the $90 billion, $90 billion in backlogged needs and ongoing investments to address both state of good repair and the growing demand. I think Peter probably can speak to some of this a little bit with his experience, and now being this transit CEO and, and really saying, whoa, okay, hey, this is, this is serious here. Um, I also want you to know that transit investment, as we all know, generates many jobs, lots of jobs, right? Um, because transportation underpins the economy on an ongoing basis. Ongoing jobs that it supports by enabling access and productivity, but the full story is over 50,000 jobs are created per billion dollars of investment. You cannot have commerce without connectivity. Transportation is truly the investment that keeps uh, paying us back. And before I go further, and so Art doesn't get me later, I want to put a plug on a study that um, AFTA just released, Who Rides Public Transportation? The Backbone of a Multimodal Lifestyle. 
This is very important because this is factual information. This is stats you can take with you when you're talking to your legislators. And we're up on the hill and logging everybody. We're back in our own districts and talking about what's important. It's right here, so we can make sure copies are available. You can have this one. This for you. Yeah, this is yours. Okay. Um, and we yesterday we had a panel presentation where we were just talking about the economic impact of public transportation in both um, city of Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, Eugene, Oregon. And thanks again, Peter. Um, were uh, two of the first BRTs. We actually shared our, our buses together and the, the, the design of our buses. And I talked about this yesterday, but our health line, which was the city of Cleveland's um, first BRT, we have two of them in place and we're planning a third one, generated over $4 billion of economic impact. Along the strip that used to be called Millionaire's Row, if those of you are familiar with the city of Cleveland, that's where Rockefeller and everybody lived, and Hannah, and, and you know, Severance. And, and to see the disinvestment that happened over the years, but to actually use public transportation to bring it back is phenomenal. It really is a, a, a story um, in that, and one that we have no problem sharing, and I'm sure Greg can talk a little bit too. Um, so enough of that for me. Today we're joined by two very special friends who are here with me today. Peter Rogoff is the Chief Executive Officer of Sound Transit, where he has served since early 2016. Um, it has been quite an eventful time for Peter since then, as he opened a major line extension in April 2016. He saw voters in Seattle region approve a $54 billion ballot measure for transit improvements in November. Uh, let's just applaud that. Prior to that, Peter served with distinction as the USDOT Undersecretary for Transportation Policy and then as the FTA Administrator. And we all know, Peter was on the ground with us. I heard somebody say, hey, you came to a ribbon cutting. We really do appreciate that, Peter. And just know, we miss you. <laughs> Prior to his FTA appointment, Peter served for 22 years on the staff of the Senate Appropriations Committee. So again, we're going to hear from Peter in a few minutes. Um, the other person here is my fellow co-chair um, on the National League of Cities Transportation Communications Committee. Several of our members are here as well. They're also writing together, so we appreciate that to let you know how important this is. Um, Greg is a member of the Eugene, Oregon City Council. He was a former transit member. Um, he served on his transit board when he, before he went over and became an elected official. He's a former member, as I said, the Lane uh, Transit District Board of Directors. He is coordinator and instructor of African American student programs at Land Community College, and he is a former member of APTA's uh, executive committee and rebel, rebel rouser on our, uh, um, our legislative committee. So he's worked this from both sides, on the APTA side and the National League of Cities side. So with that, um, it is my honor to, uh, Greg, I believe you're going to make some remarks, remarks next. All right. Thank you, Valerie. I appreciate the uh, the introduction and um, you know the, the opening remarks. And uh, Valerie and I and Peter have worked together over a number of years. As Valerie stated, I was a transit board member for six years at Lane Transit District in Eugene. And during that time, and actually before I became a transit board member, as I was coming on the transit board, we um, went in together with uh, Greater Cleveland RTA to uh, uh, embark on a innovative project, um, our, bu our bus rapid transit line. 
And in doing that, we actually were able to create a new bus. And so the bus that we were able to create and we worked with New Flyer on was a bus that mimicked what um, a rail car would do. And you had doors on both sides of the bus. And it did virtually the same thing, but on rubber wheels, rubber tires. So that was a, a, a fantastic innovation for us. We opened our first line the same year that uh, Greater Cleveland RTA opened their silver line, which uh, became, I think, the health line now on Euclid Avenue. Ours uh, connects both the cities of Eugene and Springfield and goes through the heart of the University of Oregon campus. And uh, we have also had a second line, the Gateway Line, that takes us through to the hospital in Springfield. And now we're just about to complete a third bus rapid transit line in Eugene, which takes us out to the western edge of, of the city. So we actually have a 61-mile um, footprint that we are going to eventually build out in Eugene. And I know that uh, BRT is running strong in, um, in, in Cleveland and across this country and a number of other cities. Uh, so it, it's, it's really something that we're very proud of. And I came on the transit board in 2006, the year before our first line opened, was there to work and help shepherd our second line opening. And as Peter knows, uh, struggled with getting our third line up and running, but it is almost fully constructed now. A um, couple of things that I want to touch on today, and then I'll turn it over to Peter, is that um, we had an election in November, and uh, we had a sea change in terms of uh, our leadership in this country. And one of the things that um, has been critical and has been a topic on everybody's lips, uh, particularly in this industry for a number of years, is how, how do we fully um, vest our transportation system? As Valerie said, um, our transit systems are now rated at a D minus. And I've been a college instructor for 22 years. And I've always told my students that a D is a gateway to an F. And that's what we have right now. We are at a gateway to an F in this country in terms of not just our transit system, but our transportation system overall. Our roads, our bridges, our highways, every part of our transportation system is in virtual failure right now. You all know it. You drive on roads that are close to mimicking the, the, the dark side of the moon. And, um, you know, we do this every day, and we are not keeping up with the infrastructure needs that we have. So when I became a city councilor four years ago, and I came over from the transit side to the dark side, to the elected side, um, you know, it, it was interesting to begin to look at the full picture of transportation, and to look at more at roads and bridges and other things that I had looked at as a member of my MPO, but I was more focused on transit than anything else. And as I looked at how we were failing, 
I looked at a $300 million backlog in my city in terms of road improvements and road repairs. And the issue becomes we need not only road improvements, but we need new road, new infrastructure, new transit infrastructure, because our country is growing rapidly. We are, when I came back in 2010, this country was at a population of 300 million. Now in 2017, we have 326 million people. By 2040, we will have 450 million people in the United States. Okay, that's a 50% increase from 2010. So the question is, where are all these people going to live, number one? Where are they going to work? But even more important is, how are they going to get to work? How are they going to get to school? How are they going to get to shopping opportunities? We don't have an answer for that. Unless we invest in our transportation infrastructure now, and particularly transit, we can no longer be married to the single occupancy vehicle mode of travel that we have been married to for the last 50 years. So one of the things that I want to point out is this. Our president has talked about a trillion dollar investment in transportation infrastructure. But a trillion dollar investment in what? We have no details, no kind of plan that has been outlined. There has been talk about three P's. And you know what? Three P's work in some cases. They do work. But three P's are not a strategy. It's not a transportation strategy. It is a tool in the toolbox. We do need to include three P's in that strategy, but we need to have a strategy first. And we don't have a strategy. What we have is $170 billion of new investment at the local level that has been improved. So we know that people will support investment in our transportation infrastructure. In my city, in Eugene, we, uh, uh, about five years ago, and we're getting ready to renew um, our five-year serial levy to support transportation infrastructure, but we're still going to be $200 billion behind. We have a $90 billion backlog to repair and replace our infrastructure in this country, and another $42 billion in ongoing maintenance. So we got to keep it up. We've got to work on keeping it up. And we are not doing that. So when we're talking about a trillion dollar investment, I'm saying, yay, hooray. Because when I started in transit, we were talking about, you know, what we were going to do with a new authorization. At that time, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, we were talking about um, $450 billion in 
transportation infrastructure. 123 billion was the number that APTA was throwing out because I was involved with APTA with 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 Valerie for you know transit infrastructure. 50 billion of that was supposed to be for rail infrastructure. Now nobody's talking about rail anymore. Not high speed rail. We're just trying to keep what we have. And so right now what we have is this. We have a number that is thrown out, a trillion dollars. We have no plan. And we have people talking about cutting transit from the program and also cutting Amtrak. So we have a lot of work to do. And our work is, our work is not done yet. It's time for us to get moving on this. Um, I also want to introduce, is, is, is Paul Baumer in the room? Paul, why don't you come on up to the table? I know that uh, Paul is representing, he's the legislative aide for Earl Blumenauer. Uh, Paul, where is your bicycle pin at? Oh, you got it. You got it. Okay, all right. Because so, uh, my friend Congressman Blumenauer is always famous for his bicycle pin and his stock support for rail. You know, the, the Rail Revolution Conference was the um, baby of uh, Congressman Blumenauer, who is up to the north of us from Eugene. Now, peace to Congressman from the Portland metro area. Um, so we'll, we're glad to have uh, Paul with us. I was supposed to be over at a meeting with Congressman Blumenauer, but I can't be there because I'm here, which is great. But um, I just want to wrap this up by saying this. We, like I said, we have a lot of work to do. And we need to be focused. And we cannot let transit die. And this is something that can happen. If we are not focused on the big picture. And the big picture includes transit. And particularly when we are talking about, you know, our issues with the environment, with sustainability, transit is a critical piece of that. We will not be able to move 450 million people in this country in 20 years without transit. It's not going to happen. But we have to have the investment in transit now. And the other piece of this that we really need to be looking at is where the funding is going to come from. Because we all know, and most of you in this room know, that the Highway Trust Fund is broke. It has not been recapitalized. And it's based on the gas tax, which has not been indexed since 1993. It's never been indexed. So we're going to have to find other ways of funding transit, other ways of funding our transportation infrastructure. And it's going to be critical that we all get together and we stay focused on the ball and that we talk to our new administration about what our cities need. 
what all of our cities need. And I'm not talking about just big cities. I represent a city that is 170,000 people. There are small cities that depend on transit. There are rural cities that depend on transit. We have rural transit, you know, uh, partnerships and other pieces to the puzzle. I know that this, this North Dakota State has a rural transit um, uh, practice. Yeah. And, you know, so we need to invest in all areas of transit. And it is going to be critical for us to move this picture forward. And the only way that we're going to do that is by talking to the administration, talking to Congress, and emphasizing the need for full funding for our transportation program and full investment in transit and for us not to let transit go. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Peter Rogoff. What's that? Okay, we want. So I'm I'm out of line here. So so we want Paul Ballmer to come up and to say a few words on behalf of Congressman Blumenauer. And again, one of our champions in Congress is Earl Blumenauer, along with my congressman Peter DeFazio. I think I have a great delegation from Oregon. And uh, this well, yeah, we talk about. I'm originally from Ohio. That's why she's giving me a hard time. I'm a Clevelander originally, but uh, we have strong support in the Pacific Northwest for transportation and transit. And uh, you're going to hear from um, Peter Rogoff uh, shortly after we hear from Paul. But Paul is going to talk about uh, some of the things that. Uh, Congressman Blumenauer proposing uh, to move us forward in uh, transportation funding and particularly in transit funding. So with that, Paul, come on up. Well, thank you, Greg, and uh, thank you guys for having me. Um, I think the last time that I subbed in for the congressman, um, at, at one of these briefings was about two years ago, ESI, APTA, local government, I think the Chamber of Commerce was there. New report had come out, I think maybe something about the economic impact of investment. Um, and so it, it seems uh, like a strong parallel that we're here again. The Civil Engineers report card came out just last week. But uh, here to say that this time the situation is a little bit different, uh, even though a lot of the players are the same. Um, we've got a lot of talk about infrastructure, trillion dollar package, well, not a package yet, but trillion dollar number proposed by the White House, trillion dollars also proposed by the Senate Democrats. Um, you might say that's just a top line number, that's not a lot of similarity, but compared to some of the other things that are happening here, like the, some of the dynamics around healthcare, um, this is uh, this is something that's a lot less contentious, uh, and that that gives you guys an opportunity, gives all of us an opportunity, um, with an issue that is less controversial, where there is agreement about investment. I mean, economic returns of transportation infrastructure investment—that's a no-brainer. Um, there's uh, there's there's no one who's going to argue with that. Uh, and this, at this time, um, 
in, in, on Capitol Hill, in America, uh, where we're seeing an immense outpouring of civic engagement. This is something that we should all be able to latch on to. Uh, we're seeing a lot of action at the local level, especially uh, for transportation investment. Um, and they've been able to make the case at the local level for connectivity, uh, for economic impacts. I mean, $200 billion at least approved uh, by the voters. Uh, obviously, Mr. Rogoff can talk a lot more about his piece of it. Um, not just uh, ballot initiative state legislatures. Uh, you have uh, almost a dozen states raising the gas tax in the last two years. This is something that Congress should learn from. This is something that Washington can learn from. At the local level, you guys are getting it done. Um, and you know, Congressman Blumenauer, uh, our office, we have our solution, uh, which is to raise the gas tax and index the gas tax. Uh, we just introduced a bill last week, H.R. 1458, the Raise It Act. Uh, look it up. Um, there should be uh, no, no shortage of discussion here in Congress, whether it's our bill. I know that uh, after my boss spoke at APTA this morning, um, the APTA folks heard from Congressman Delaney, who has other proposals. There should be no shortage of discussion about how to raise the revenue, uh, where to invest it, where to get the most value out of the federal partnership. Uh, that's why you guys are here. I look forward to hearing uh, more about how um, we can better make the case to our colleagues um, for making these investments, but we're going to be here, uh, but we, we can't do it alone, so thank you. And thank you again for being here with us this afternoon. So now, for the keynote address, we're going to turn it over to <laughs> um, Mr. Rogoff, because I, I think you're going to find his remarks um, as someone who has worked on the federal side, worked on the congressional side, and now is running his own transit agency, um, why this is important and how economic impact and investment really, really matter. So, Peter? Thank you, Valerie and Greg and Paul. Um, I have had the great pleasure of working uh, both on the local transit needs in, in those communities, both Cleveland and the, the, the what we call the Eugene Springfield Metroplex, um, as well as Greater Portland, um, with uh, with Congressman Blumenauer. You know, and when you look across the country, what you find is that the mobility needs of Americans are as diverse as the nation itself. You've got older cities in the East and the Midwest, uh, in cities like Cleveland, but also Philadelphia, New York, Boston, Chicago, and the like. They have uh, bridges, they have platforms, they have substations that are serving either hundreds of thousands or even some of these millions of passengers a day. Uh, and they are doing it on infrastructure that uh, sometimes dates as far back as World War II and in some cases are more than 100 years old. At the same time, we have fast-growing cities uh, in the West as well as the South um, where the population growth is happening so fast that people are seeing road congestion the likes of which they have never seen. Uh, we're talking about cities like Austin, Atlanta, Dallas, Los Angeles, Phoenix, and from where I now hail from, the greater Puget Sound area, including Seattle, Tacoma, and Everett. 
uh, voters in these communities are hungering for an alternative to spending hours in traffic. And they're looking for federal help to match their own tax dollars in order to get those options to get out of punishing traffic. There, there is a certain desperation in many of these cities, whether they are the uh, older line cities in need of repair or the newer line cities in need of expansion. That desperation by the older line cities is they're kind of, as they say, kind of running out of duct tape. Um, it is really true that uh, and it doesn't matter if it's a highway bridge or a transit bridge, it's all the same. You can only repair it so many times before it absolutely needs to be replaced. Uh, similarly, in the fast-growing cities, uh, we've got communities here, not necessarily large ones, small communities that only run buses, but they're growing so fast and the demand on them is growing at such a pace that uh, they can't buy new buses fast enough uh, in order to fill them. And uh, they're really constrained not by uh, whether the riders want the service or not, but how quickly they can finance the ability to get new buses to put on the road to meet that need. Um, the real concern where the population is growing fast and the congestion is worsening so rapidly is, is the trajectory of their local economy. Uh, many folks have gravitated to those cities because of the economic promise that those cities present. At the same time, if the congestion gets worse enough, the ability of that local economy to actually generate jobs for all those new residents is considerably underwhelmed, uh, undermined. Uh, and we are, we are seeing that in terms of the impact of road congestion on our ports uh, and their ability to grow. Uh, in terms of uh, business location. I, I will tell a quick story. When I was serving as undersecretary, I'm going to avoid naming the city, um, but we, uh, um, Secretary, then Secretary Fox and I was serving as undersecretary. We met with a certain city in the southeast that was truly, you know, there was a desperation in their voice uh, in terms of wanting us to partner with them and provide federal funds to match their local dollars to build out uh, a transit system, uh, transit connections that just didn't exist in those cities before. And when you really started talking to them and unpacking what the desperation was, it was really because they were starting to become a poster child for congestion. And at the same time, they were losing out in terms of recruiting new jobs, recruiting corporate relocations to cities like Charlotte, to like uh, Research Triangle in North Carolina, uh, to Jacksonville, to other cities that were expanding their transit system quite rapidly. And they felt they needed to keep pace because they needed to have options out of the congestion. Um, I will say this, given though that, that, if you will, that double whammy, the, the cities in the east and the midwest that are desperately in need of state of the repair funds, the cities in the west and the south that desperately need to expand their systems, uh, it is quite timely for the new administration to be talking about a robust and transformational infrastructure package. If the president's infrastructure package is large enough, if it's forward-looking enough, if it, it is structured to provide real help to commuters and not just investment bankers, it holds the promise to really address the diverse infrastructure needs of the nation and move our economy forward. But there's a lot of ifs in that. And we need to be diligent as we work with the administration to make sure that those ifs are addressed. Uh, I was asked to join this panel to talk a little bit about what we've experienced in the Puget Sound region. 
one of those fast-growing regions that is behind where we need to be in getting folks away out of congestion. Uh, before I left the, the Obama administration, I was privileged to work on a report that was called the Beyond Traffic Study. And one of the things that that study gave rise to were some of the population numbers that Greg talked about. That by the year 2040, we're going to have 70 million more Americans. But what's really unique in terms of what that census data showed us is unlike really any past surge in population that the country has seen, those 70 million additional Americans are going to be located just in 11 major mega-regions. It is not going to be you know, diffuse all across the country. Uh, Puget, Sound, uh, Puget Sound region happens to be one of those uh, mega-regions, and we are expecting a million more citizens, a million of those 70 million by 2040. Uh, it's about 800,000 additional citizens within the Sound Transit Taxing District, but when you get just beyond our district line and include Kitsap County and others, it gets up to about a million, uh, a million additional Americans. So let me, let me just give you a sense of what that is. A million additional Americans in the Puget Sound region is the entire population of Seattle and the entire population of Tacoma added on top of the congestion we already have. And that congestion has close to doubled in just the last five years. 95% increase in just the last five years in terms of the delays that citizens in the Puget Sound region are experiencing. And, and they are well tired of it and looking for an option. More than 90% of the highway delays in the entire state of Washington are all within that Puget Sound region. And, I, and what I used to say commonly when uh, I was both undersecretary and the Federal Transit Administrator, really when you're staring at population growth of that magnitude and that rapid a pace, you really only have two choices. You can plan for it or be completely overwhelmed by it. Uh, and I'm pleased to say that the people of Puget Sound did in fact plan for it. And voters this past November approved an historic extension of the region's high capacity transit infrastructure. It's a 25 year, $54 billion plan approved by voters. It includes, among other elements, building 62 more miles of light rail, establishing real bus rapid transit on, on two important segments on Interstate 405, one of our most congested uh, highways in the region, um, uh, we, uh, as well as on State Route 522. Um, we are adding to our commuter rail service, our commuter rail service between uh, Lakewood, Tacoma, and Seattle. Their ridership has increased 15% in just the last year with absolutely no increase in frequencies available. That 15% surge in one year was really just the result of how punishing the traffic is on I-5 in the morning. Um, so uh, the voters of the Puget Sound region encountered and took on upon themselves a serious sacrifice to do this. Uh, the tax increment that they are paying should not be belittled. It is, on average, $169 per adult per year in increased taxes to pay for this plan. But that's what a doubling of congestion over five years will do to the mindset of folks. We've had, as as uh, Valerie kindly pointed out, we had a very successful launch of light rail um, in terms of we added three stations in just the last year. Two of those stations happened to be in the most densely populated communities in the entire state. And as a result, uh, depending on which week you count, we've had a ridership surge of between 77 and 82% in ridership on light rail. 
I would love to tell you that we were perfectly situated and postured to absorb a ridership of it, that increase all of a sudden, but we did have um, some, some learning uh, curves to climb in terms of that. But it was an absolute game changer. Um, I'm not going to get into like local sports, Ohio State versus University of Washington football. But I will point out that uh, the terminus is to the north right now until 2021 when we will advance up to what's called Northgate and then on to Linwood into Snohomish County. The current terminus is at Husky Stadium at the University of Washington. Uh, and it was a game-changing experience for folks who normally commuted on Saturdays to come to a Husky football game when they could literally take light rail right up to the gate. You know, people as the game ended and they realized that they were going to be home in 20 minutes rather than have to take 40 minutes just to get out of the parking lot to then take another. Is it like, I've never known what, I, what to do with the second half of a Saturday afternoon because I've never had one before. <laughs> but those are the transformative things that light rail does for folks. It actually gives them the guarantee, no matter what the weather condition, no matter what the traffic conditions, the comfort that they are going to get home in time to pick up their kids from daycare. They actually have a fighting shot to have meals with their kids, supervise homework, um, and uh, perhaps, heaven forbid, entertain a hobby. <laughs> uh, the kind of things that are so hard to do. Also importantly, though, these aren't investments are, are not just about the quality of life of the community we serve. It's also about the jobs we produce. Earlier I talked about the fact that if you don't make the investment, and congestion completely overwhelms the city, how that can really undermine the financial trajectory and the ability to create jobs. But when you do invest, you create thousands of thousands of jobs. And they're not just any jobs. These are construction and engineering jobs, material fabrication jobs, the kind of family wage jobs that don't necessarily require a college degree, but now with a 25-year plan in the Puget Sound region, we're going to be able to keep people employed for a career. Um, as a result, we are making very, very aggressive efforts. On top of the aggressive efforts we were already making to exceed our disadvantaged business goals, we just succeeded them again this year, to uh, accelerate our apprenticeship programs to make sure that women and people of color are fully represented throughout the workforce. Um, and actually use those investments to transform the trajectory of those communities as well uh, as part of the overall economic resurgence of the region that we want to see. In the end, we will support over 78,000 direct jobs. Those are the direct jobs. I'm not talking about the indirect jobs. Um, over that 25 years of construction. Um, so it is a very positive story, not without its challenges um, in our region. Um, but right now, we are blessed with uh, the implementation challenges on how we literally expand light rail north, south, east, and west, not at the exact same stage, but, but roughly at the same time over a two-decade period. Um, in the end, about 84% of the people living in the Sound Transit District and 93% of the employees will have convenient access to our rail system. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the budget something that Greg was alluding to, and then, then I'll sit down and take questions. We're here at a propitious week. This Thursday, we are told, uh, the new administration will be releasing what is referred to as the skinny budget. Um, that normally refers to the fact that it's an abbreviated budget, and new presidents, some of they've come in, and I've experienced this before, back when I was working in the Senate. Some of you may remember this when 
George H.W. Bush took over for Ronald Reagan and first came as president. He released a document called Building a Better, a Better America, or BABA for short. It was many, many years ago. Um, but releasing uh, as a new president a skinny budget um, is, is fine and appropriate and precedented. What concerns me is the skinniness of the, of the funding levels that we are that are rumored that we could be hearing, especially for the Department of Transportation. Uh, I think it's important to point out, as Greg did, we stand ready to support and be fully behind a national infrastructure package. It is uh, something that the president cited that it uh, engendered bipartisan support and bicameral support throughout the campaign. We are especially interested, obviously, in, in, in an infrastructure package that addresses the needs of all modes of transportation and one that truly benefits daily commuters and not just benefits financial intermediaries along the way. But importantly, a one-time notional infrastructure package is no substitute for the regular funding that comes in the annual budget that cities across the country depend on each and every year to pay their bills. Uh, we can't be wowed by the notion of an infrastructure package and watch Congress accede to a budget request uh, to cut the guts out of our annual infrastructure to, uh, uh, investment that uh, really just serves to maintain things the way we have. Or I really shouldn't say that because at current funding levels in the regular annual budget, we are not maintaining things that they are. In fact, conditions are worsening. They're worsening. Um, on our runways, they are worsening on our highways, they are worsening our transit and rail systems, they are worsening our bus networks. All the more reason why we can't be wowed by talk of an infrastructure package and ignore the realities of what may be coming out in Thursday's budget for transportation. Um, what we really need is a national infrastructure package that doesn't serve as a substitute for regular annualized funding, but actually thrusts the country forward to buy down that infrastructure deficit, to actually move us forward in expanding systems to meet the growing population, not just substituting one pot of money for another. So thank you for listening. I think we're, uh, as a panel, we're going to take questions. So um, again, thank you very much, and we'll take questions now. I knew Art was going to be the first one. I'll throw it out. <laughs> Uh, we're talking about these uh, these projects that bring economic returns. Uh, now, the, uh, a word that's gotten thrown out lately is uh, dynamic scoring, and I'd like to just ask that uh, it, you know uh, straight up. I'm frankly not uh, pushing for anything here, but I'm just saying: is there a? Uh, does that make sense? What are the views on that? If if a project brings economic activity, increased revenues to communities, increased tax revenues that are going to parlay through. Should that be scored? In the past, it has not uh, been allowed to be scored, uh, right? Uh, but that idea seems to be on the table. Now, is dynamic scoring a good idea? Thank you. Dynamic scoring um, is generally referred to, um, especially you know, within a narrow band, and that is what are the federal uh, tax reductions accompanied by the federal receipts that people would then expect to result? Um, you know, I'm not an economist, 
great many economists question whether really it's a legitimate way to do that, or whether it's just an end run around having to live within the constraints of a unified federal budget. I will say this, we shouldn't be necessarily wooed into these budgetary concepts, because when we talk about the economic uh, benefits um, that come as a result, for example, of a major uh, infrastructure investment, whether it's a port investment, uh, transit investment, a highway investment, I do not know that the, those additional economic activity results in federal revenues. Right? It may result in state and local revenues. It may just, thankfully, not all just get taxed, but actually land in people's pockets in the form of new jobs, new job opportunities, materials bought. Um, I, don't, I do not know that, we, you know, as a community, we should be wooed into this budgetary concept, which, frankly, uh, has a lot of its motivation uh, in folks that want to bypass federal rules for other purposes. I think more, a more interesting conversation is really about the issue of having separate operating and capital budgets for the federal government. Uh, this is something that happens, and, and they have in certain examples of local or state government, where they recognize that the capital expenditures that need to pay themselves off over a longer period of time and, and, and generate revenues over a longer period of time are, are treated differently than annual operating funds. That, I think, may be the more interesting conversation for folks interested in, in infrastructure. Thank you. Yeah. You know, we've, we've, all heard, we've all heard a great deal about the new technologies that are about to sweep over us in the transportation industry, the transportation network companies, the autonomous driving vehicles, predictions that it's going to cure congestion, that uh, parking is not going to be a problem anymore. And there is a school of thought out there that says we should push the pause button on major mega projects until these technologies sort themselves out. Well, what do you think about that? People are not going to stop having babies. <laughs> well, that wasn't quite my question. <laughs> Let me provide a more nuanced response. <laughs> I, I, you know, we we uh, we heard this uh, issue during our ballot measure. We at the, at the transit agency, we do not campaign for our ballot measure. We just, you know, uh, share uh, information in terms of what it would do on both the revenue side and the expenditure side. There are uh, we have uh, board members in the campaign operations that are completely separate from us that engage in that. But we did hear this discussion about Uber and Lyft and whether that's how everyone's going to get around. I think in the final analysis, I go back to what I said before, road congestion has almost doubled in five years in the Puget Sound region. Uber and Lyft vehicles have to use that same road network, uh, and they are stuck in the same congestion as everybody else. So the notion that that is you know, a panacea or a path out, I think, uh, really uh, did not hold water with the voters of the Puget Sound region. Um, and you know we view uh, those companies and those innovations as an opportunity to augment the service we have. I've been particularly fascinated and want to sort of do more research on uh, an example in New Jersey, a community in Bergen County when they were faced with the cost of building a new parking garage adjacent to a New Jersey transit uh, facility decided instead that, at least as a pilot, they would subsidize the Uber and Lyft trips for their 
community to get, uh, the people in their community could get to and from the rail station. Now, those people are not going all the way from Bergen County to Manhattan on a subsidized Uber and Lyft uh, Adam, they are simply getting from their home, the so-called last mile challenge, getting from their home to the transit station. We, we at Sound Transit will be making sure that as we build out the additional stations that come with this new ballot measure and, and more than 60 miles of additional light rail, that we have uh, turnaround uh, and, and drop-off uh, facilities to accommodate them. But I don't ever see them, certainly in terms of the throughput that we can provide um, at peak times, uh, our value proposition is that we can get people out of congestion and Uber and Lyft simply cannot offer that. I'll, I'll jump into here. I, I think that that last example uh, of, of communities and transit agencies working together with TNCs is, is great. And I think the answer is that um, there's a lot of middle ground between saying that autonomous vehicles aren't going to be here or they're not a panacea um, and embracing it and not investing in new transit. Um, I think that it does need to be considered and people do need to be thinking about it. I think National League of Cities put out a report last year that only 6% of, of large cities had autonomous vehicles in their 20-year transportation plans. Uh, I'm sure a lot's changed in a year. This was a huge year for autonomous vehicles and mobility technology, but nevertheless, um, I think it should be a part of the, uh, of, of the planning process. Um, certainly no, no substitute for transit, but I think there are some things we can learn. Um, the Uber and Lyft and their competitors have uh, become very adept at monetizing congestion, which is the biggest cost of the transportation network. Um, ultimately, uh, Congressman Blumenauer believes that we should move to uh, more of a congestion pricing scheme um, where that's on top of a, of a gas tax, which doesn't really um, pay for your actual use on the network. Um, congestion pricing can be, if people are more comfortable with it, if they are used to seeing it uh, when they call that car, um, I think that that will, that will be a way to, to help us move forward and, and also incentivize people to uh, make other choices like taking the train. And I would just add, I know Jeff, your question, um, I do think we, we have to pay attention though to the new technologies that will be coming out. I don't think we can stop and wait because technology is ever evolving. But I do think we have to make sure we're paying attention because I don't know if you were in the board meeting, we had the one year um, when we had uh, the guy from, uh, it was we, we had a session at the app, one of our after board meetings around disruptive technologies. And he asked us a very, Brilliant question, right? We're funding from the gas tax, right? Right. Well, if we're moving to more autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles, did you just find ourselves out of existence? And so we do have to pause and make sure that we're paying attention to what those new technologies are, um, those that are, haven't even come out yet. Um, but but and keep our hands on on and, you know on the pulse of what's going on. So to your question, I think it's, it's a great question. It's one we ponder a lot, and we have to stay up on it. So. Thank you for that question. And you, you also have to remember too, Jeff, that technology is also going to be keeping pace with how we ultimately price out, um, you know, the vehicle miles traveled. So as you know, we have had uh, pilot programs in Oregon, Washington, and California 
about you know VMT pricing, and so you know being able to capture vehicle miles traveled as a way of paying for our infrastructure systems is going to be critical. And I know that a lot of people in in my state in the rural cities push back against that and say, you know, you're you're you know you're going to be it's not fair, we drive more miles, whatever, but you pay for what you use. And that's really where it's going to end up being the, the bottom line, is being able to pay for what we use and using technology to be able to do that. So that, you know, when you stick, you plug in at the pump, whether, you know, you're charging up your electric vehicle or you're, char or you're gassing up your vehicle, you know, we're going to be able to capture um, the vehicle miles traveled, um, you know, dollars through those, those new technologies. So technology is going to, I think, be complementary to what we are, you know, uh, seeing evolve over the next 10, 15, 20 years. And eventually people will wrap their heads around um, you know, VMT pricing or maybe another technology that has yet to emerge to be able to pay for what we use. Yeah, I'll probably just have one last thing on technology and move on to other questions. I mean, there are some. Let's also remember that techno technology advances also benefit our industry. Mm -hmm. um, we are very proud at, at Sound Transit. We uh, just, uh, my board just voted to become a financial partner in a new state of the art. Uh, wind power generation facility um, uh, not far from uh, uh, our, our area. Um, and as a result, at least for a number of years, we believe we may be the only carbon neutral rail system, transit rail system in the United States. Now in fairness, it's nice to boast that. That is in part because we generate a lot of power in Washington State through hydroelectric rather than coal. So we already start ahead of the game. And then with that remaining increment, we're going to be able to get it from wind. But these are new technology innovations that, you know, we at the same time are looking for our ways for our vehicles to use less energy. Then we're getting our energy from new state-of-the-art uh, wind power. Uh, we'll be carbon neutral for a number of years until a good thing happens. We extend our service farther north, and we have to buy some power from a different utility. So, yes, ma'am. So I'm not going to truncate the technology conversation. I'm an IT director that works in Seattle, and I go home, and I can stay home, and I can telecommute from, commute from home, and you're not going to get a penny on me for those roads. Yeah. Or I can work for Microsoft, and they pay for my circulator to come get me to go to work, and you're not going to get any money from me, maybe a little bit from that transit situation. Or you're going to have me think about driving to work, but eventually I'm going to get that automated car that drops me off and goes back to my home. So I've, I've solved the problem to get to and from and only using surface streets at that time. Where is your VMG there? My feeling is, and it's a little bit crazy, a little bit radical, you know, start looking at insurance coverage. Because I own four cars. I own four cars, whether I drive them or I don't. And they, they charge me insurance for those cars. Maybe I should only have one car, but I have different things I do with them. And for each of those insurance fees, I think you ought to be looking at us whether it's automated car or whether it's, you know, a four-wheel drive or whatever, you ought to be looking at that and taxing that as opposed to how far I go on a road. Because I can either never go on a road and still use your road maybe on a weekend and gas up once a year, or I can find 
a way to have no gasoline at all and never pay you any taxes there, I think at some point, somewhere, we as a public are going to have to say, much like many other utilities, it costs money to keep roads up and it costs money to keep transit up. And I hate to talk flat tax or anything else, but find a way to find, you know, to get the revenue steady and put one and two on the users because you're never going to get there. And frankly, this is as important to me as the fire department or the police department or anybody else. It's a public thing that we need to support and there are people who cannot buy it. And eventually, the technology people are not going to use it. And then you're going to charge us what? Because we'll get our employees to do that and other people to do it. And at some point, we're just all not going to be moving. And Amazon's going to drop my groceries off, apparently, through an through a, uh, overhead vehicle of some sort, unmanned. So we need to think way beyond the envelope that we're in. Um, I'm happy with the solutions we see between, I call it the last mile, because I'm from technology. But the last mile, getting home from that transit center is really important to me. Parking's ridiculous. And asking us to park in neighborhoods and overflow them, that's ridiculous. So I would hope that you could help us look to new ways of finding those revenues and get it steady and get it isolated and devoted and dedicated to transportation. Any one of you um, could comment on that. You're welcome. Yeah. I think that, you know, this not far-fetched idea. You know, I can even say we could get it from apps because technology isn't going anywhere. And so every time you download an app, there's an automatic X amount of cents that goes to pay for whatever we want to pay for. I, I think your point is a very important point, which I think we're talking about. There is an economic impact to public transportation, yet at the same time we have to start thinking outside the box of how we're going to continue to fund it. Because quite honestly, what will happen is we're, we've, we've got... Um, we had the MAP 21, we have the FAST Act, which was the longest <laughs> funding bill we had in a long time. Um, but that's already, oh, what, three years in almost? We're, we're, we're two, two years into that one, pretty much, three years already. And so we're already talking this conversation about moving forward, but how do we make sure that we have dedicated funding? And it's not just on a federal side. There's a local issue here, too, because it's great if we dedicate it up here, but then we can't fix the roads and the bridges and the things still down in our respective communities. We just did ourselves a disservice. So I don't think your idea is too far-fetched, quite honestly. And it's one of those things where we have to push ourselves as an industry. It's not just after a league of cities, which is why I, I, I focus on collaboration a lot. We all have to come together. We all have to have those same top ten bullet points, and then we have to drill, drill, drill. No pun intended. I'm just saying, drill, baby, drill. But, but drill that into you know the heads of our legislators to say, hey, this is serious, and we're serious. And so that's part of what we have to come. But there's, there's, we could probably have a really great session sitting around and thinking of all the other things we can, and then talking half of them off the table. But the point is, the fact we're thinking outside the box. That's not a far-fetched idea at all. I would just add, um, I want to echo uh, Valerie's discussion about collaboration. Now, one of the things that concerns me, again, I don't know what's coming out with the administration's budget, but I've seen proposed budgets by some organizations that have fairly significant sway, it seems, in, in the new administration. And some of them try to sort of throw us back to old ideological battles about roads versus transit, rail versus highway, you know, inner city rail versus airport, you know, aviation. And, and I will tell you, um, if I have one impression of having gone from work at the federal level to go work at the local level, that is how extraordinarily irrelevant that issue is when you get to trying to solve community-based problems. But as I said earlier, the Future Sound region is going to have uh, a million more people in the next 40 years. Excuse me, by 2040. With a million more people coming by 2040, 
It's not about aviation versus highway investment versus transit investment. We need more of all of it. Uh, and then you can include within that locks and dams, um, other waterway improvements, port infrastructure. Uh, so when it, and, and the other thing is on the technology side, the distinctions between what is transit versus what is highway, you know, what is traditional road transportation. Um, you know, we operate uh, commuter rail over a freight rail network. Uh, we try and figure out every day how to better coordinate to get more capacity out of that system. It's one system. And uh, if you've seen one city's transportation profile, you've seen one city's transportation profile, because each of them are different, and each of them have to solve their problem their own way. So by collaborating with all those other interests to figure out how to solve the funding conundrum, that's really the way to go, because it'll be, it'll be way easy for opponents to try to balkanize us and say, you know, they don't need the money, you do. Uh, and that's not a productive conversation. I heard Mr. Evans talk about 3P, and I don't know what that term means. Um, and I have a second question, which is I, I hear the Trump administration talking a lot about privatization, private capital, and tolling. And I have concerns about that in terms of fairness and, and regressive impacts on, on people who are already kind of at the edge in terms of their ability to pay for uh, transportation. And I'm wondering if you're thinking about how to, how to work within the, what looks like the framework that will be coming out of the Trump administration, which is not much new public investment, but instead trying to lure private investment in, which means they have to make a profit. And it, it, it means that, that maybe the services that are available to moderate and low-income households won't be available or won't be, won't be uh, increased, but instead we'll be building a transportation infrastructure system that is, that is for the high flyers, so to speak. So free piece, and I'm sorry to get into acronym crap, but it is what it is, uh, are public-private partnerships. And so it, you, you, make it, you make an excellent point about that. So what we've had from the administration to this point is this. The throw out of the big balloon number of a trillion dollars of infrastructure investment and then some sketchy talk, and I'll just be candid about it. I'm a politician, so I get away with that. <laughs> sketchy talk about public-private partnerships and you know being able to um, have private investment to uh, basically drive you know the, the development of our, our, our infrastructure, transportation infrastructure in this country. And what people don't understand is that public-private partnerships are a tool. They are not a strategy. So what I mean by that is is that you know what the president is looking at as bright shiny things over here. Okay, and what the reality is is that, and even his own transportation secretary said this a week ago, is that public-private partnerships are not a panacea for public investment in infrastructure. So you know you have you know two different versions of what the story is. So it doesn't get to funding public infrastructure, 
and does not get to the issues that we need of building out public infrastructure. It does not getting into the issues of the broad investment that we need. And, you know, hopefully next week, I think coming up, the skinny budget comes out next week, there will be some more detail about what the administration's plan is around this. But I'll be quite frank, I'm not very hopeful that that plan will have any real robust beef to it. So, yes, public-private partnerships have been successful in public transit. Uh, Denver RTD is one of the uh, examples of that. Uh, they had a rail line that, that they built that is a public-private partnership that has a 34, 35 year window of investment on the private side and that that infrastructure will eventually be turned back over to Denver RTD after 35 years. But those kinds of projects are few and far between. It doesn't necessarily work for smaller guys like us in Eugene, Springfield, or in some other places. So we really got to look at, um, you know, looking at what the real issues are and stop following the shiny ball over here. And I, I would just add, public-private partnerships, three Ps, whatever we want to call them, are not new. Um, and depending on how you look at them, from a local level, we do three Ps every single day. We partner with our philanthropic community. We partner with our school district. We partner with the transit agency on the local level. So we, we do it all the time. What I think we have to be careful about is there are some great examples of public-private partner, partnerships right here. If we take it out of the transportation realm and look at it from a municipal realm, and it's called, it could be seen as privatization. Um, there was a drive, I won't name any city, where everybody was coming in, hey, let us, why don't you give us your parking lots and your parking meters? You know, we'll operate them for you, we'll pay you X amount of millions and millions of dollars up front, we'll turn around and give it back to you at some point later, right? Well, for us in the city of Cleveland in particular, that, that parking, every time you put a quarter in a meter, that helps to support our municipal bonds. And so that's our asset. We own that. We own that asset. And so I do think, and we had a we had a very good discussion about three Ps um, in the T and I committee. We we need to balance and make sure that we're using the same definition. We know what it is in particular. And like Greg said, and I think you'll hear some people say, the Denver model was phenomenal. When we were building a bridge in Cleveland, the George Voinovich Bridge, and our um, governor came out and said, Hey, we got a way to expedite the funding. We're going to do a public-private partnership. Are you guys okay with this? And then just went away because that didn't work out because they were going to front the financing. So I do think we need to be mindful. I think those are case-by-case -case situations from a fiscal perspective, but there's different definitions of public-private partnership when the truth of the matter is they mean the same thing, so we got to start using that same one and then using that, as you say, one of the twos out of the two box. And I apologize. I know we got a couple more. I, I just I wanted to say this. Historically, we need to remember Transit agencies started out as private enterprise in this country, and they went broke in the 60s. And that's why we ended up with public transit and, you know, people having, having you know, 1% sales tax or whatever the case may be all across the country to fund public transit in a broad context because it was needed and was seen as a public utility. That's what it is. So I would just 
address the one part of your question we didn't address very quickly, and, uh, and that is the regressivity of the of the revenue sources. Um, you know, we've talked. Uh, Public-private partnerships have been changing. Um, Denver was a unique example, really made facilitated by the fact that the state of Colorado's legislature was willing to put up an availability payment uh, against which to, to leverage the private partnership. When it comes to taxes, there's also some innovations going on, and the Puget Sound region is one of the areas where it is happening. Let me give you just a couple of quick examples. One's on the service side, one's on the tax side. On the service side, we're very proud of a program we have uh, in our region. It's called Orca Lift. Orca is the card used to tap onto our system, bus or rail. Uh, you can go through social service organizations, verify that you're a low-income individual, and get subsidized transit tips. When I board the bus in the morning, I tap onto the bus, and when the person behind me does, they tap on the bus. We're both cleared, and nobody knows who you know paid the subsidized fare versus uh, the higher fare. Um, it is just a, a, a service that we provide for low-income individuals to be able to access the system, and obviously we forego some fair revenue to do that. But as a matter of policy, the region stands behind it. Similarly, we have some taxes, uh, which um, uh, in, in certain of our cities, Seattle being one, uh, where there is either low-income exemptions or low-income rebates uh, in order to deal with that. Now, that's very, that's always, this has always been an issue with the gas tax. The gas tax, like, like other uh, excise and sales taxes, uh, is a very aggressive tax, and it's one of the reasons and one of the other motivations to try to move away from it. You know, we talk a lot in the transit community about transit-dependent individuals. I have in-laws who live in rural Indiana. They're gasoline-dependent individuals. You know, get my mother-in-law to health care. It's not going to happen on a bus. Um, and uh, and the price of gas makes a big difference to my father-in-law and is on a fixed income to make it work. Um, so there's, there should be ways of looking at all of these progressive versus regressive taxes in a way where we get the revenues we need to build the system, but also be cognizant of the fact that depending on how we structure it, it could, it could hurt the very people we're trying to lift up you know, through these investments. Just before we go to the next question, um, I know I see one in the back, one up front. I just want to be mindful we have a hard stop at 5 o'clock. Um, and so, um, you know, we want to try to take as many questions as we can, but in case we don't, um, we can make sure that you know how to get in contact with us if you have additional questions as well. All right. I saw a question in the back. Billy, did you have a question? Yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. A ask your question, Billy. Um, what's up, Paul? <laughs> I've seen Paul Moore a couple days, and I've seen my wife the last couple days. Uh, um, that didn't sound right. We've been working hard. I uh, appreciate the congressman's um, uh, comments this morning. Um, uh, quick, two quick questions. Uh, Paul, number one, um, what is the congressman's feeling regarding the 115th and uh, his bill uh, getting any more, any less traction than it, than it uh, previously received days? New opportunity, less of opportunity. I'm curious about that. And then, secondly, if I could take a quick second and, and change name to add to the panel here the, the economic returns of local transportation initiative and what do we do with the money? 
um, uh, Valerie uh, moderated a wonderful session um, uh, yesterday um, about public transportation and its economic impact. Talked about some $4.5 billion of economic uh, impact um, by various BRT lines. And I'm curious, um, Peter, also your thoughts about the tremendous level of economic activity uh, generated or birthed uh, by transportation, public transportation investments, and uh, those revenues that are generated, how can we find a way to uh, to invest back in the very entity that birthed those revenues in the first place? Uh, sure, no, uh, thanks for the question, and, and yes, um, as, as Billy alludes to, gas tax legislation, no uh, new initiative for Congressman Blumenauer was introduced in the last two Congresses. Uh, same template, 15 cent increase phased in over three years, um, increasing both gas and diesel taxes uh, and indexing them to inflation. Um, two years ago when we reintroduced it, when, uh, at the beginning of the 114th Congress, there was a lot of momentum around a gas tax. We saw almost uh, daily uh, reports of a senator, uh, Republican senator being open to it or um, Nancy Pelosi saying maybe it was time to raise the gas tax. Uh, I think a lot of that was due to um, local action, actually, and uh, action from the infrastructure community. Uh, we had dozens of letters up to Capitol Hill um, and, and the drumbeat for real investment that was uh, stable, uh, dedicated, uh, and, and big enough to, to do the job of funding a long-term transportation bill. Um, that message resonated, um, and it seems like we're not quite in the same place. There are a couple uh, other things going on in the news that uh, can sort of detract, distract from the infrastructure uh, investment gap that we are facing. Um, I, I think the congressman mentioned this a little bit this morning at APTA. Uh, if, if the atmosphere uh, is conducive to a real tax reform conversation, and if we do get down to business on an infrastructure package, I, I don't think that public-private partnerships are, are going to be enough uh, to cut it. And I think that any infrastructure bill that's based just on that doesn't stand any chance in Congress. Um, I, I, think, I think if we actually took a look at it, uh, there's, there's a possibility for the gas tax. I mean, uh, we've, we've just got to gotta follow the lead of, of, of the leaders at the local level who've, who've done this work. Peter? I think, the, I think the question is, is, is how might transit better capture the revenue generated from its investment? And, and um, um, a couple of ideas that are out there that have been tried at various levels, uh, tax increment finance districts, which are not um, legal in every state. There are hybrids of it that kind of look and smell like a tax increment financing district, but these are things where you effectively draw a line around the alignment that's the, the community around which is going to have the greatest capital appreciation um, and try to tax a piece of that increased value. I will tell you, you know, a lot of the challenges and something that we are dealing with that's sort of unique, it actually goes to the regressivity question that was asked before, we are working diligently under um, new requirements that came with our ballot measure to try to make sure that there is still the availability of some affordable housing around the infrastructure we built that it not get developed to a point that it becomes a huge gentrification engine as it has in other communities. 
you could view that as potentially as leaving some revenue on the table. You know, you could build high-end retail along every one of these environments and continue to push people out of their communities. And then, what have you really done for them? You know, I will tell you that in the, in the Puget Sound region, uh, our biggest challenge, I think, right now is not capturing more revenue. The voters have already voted a very sizable tax increase along themselves, and it's time for us to deliver on it. Um, I think uh, part of our challenge is to ask them to be patient because they'll be paying the revenues right away and we will be delivering the projects out over a 25-year period. But there are ways. I think you know the FTA has sought with a new joint development circular to see if we could you know provide some greater flexibility to transit agencies to partner with private development in and around uh, their um, their facilities in order to capture a piece of the revenue. I think especially for those systems that have generated billions, if not zillions, and yet have a huge state of good repair challenge. Uh, it is really necessary to find a way to let them reinvest because you can bet that if they, as you do see in certain cities around the country and we are unfortunately seeing here in the nation's capital with the imperative need to close down the Ramada system to do urgent need of repairs that should have been done years ago. Uh, that when the businesses lose that rail connection, they feel it then. Um, so there needs to be some mechanism on the other side that if they've benefited from the presence of the rail connection, they need to make a contribution toward its upkeep. And, 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 you know, I think that's interesting that you raised the TIF. Um, and I know, Tom, you had a question up here next. Um, sorry. Um, it, but it, just a quick follow-up to that real quick, Peter, on the TIF. Have, have you used that um, as a tra transit agency? We have not, um, but we are, you know, we are already funded through a unique sort of blend of, of three taxes. Um, you know, right now, like I said, we're sort of in a unique thing to not, we don't look necessarily at the community as how can we command yet more money out of them. We're trying to do a lot better on placemaking to make sure that that community remains mixed income and open and available. And, and the reason why I ask this, I mean, we use it a lot on the local level, so I'm sure most cities, we use it a lot. Um, we try to keep our school district whole with our tips because we're tipping the real estate, but we try to make sure. But we have done some successful projects. Um, we redid the whole Flats East Bank. Let me get back there. Check it out. Um, based off a tip, taking the, the, the incremental increase in the value of the property and putting it back into the project. But I haven't seen it done on a transit site. It may be something worth looking at one day. So if you do do one, let us know. I want to follow it. Closer. Actually, not far from you. I think uh, at least uh, Chicago Red Line was going yeah. to try to do one to help leverage funds to, yeah. for that reason. <laughs> okay. And I'm sorry, I know we had a question up here. Tom, and then we... We probably, um, this will probably be the last question, depending on how long we go, but I know, I see some hands up, so we'll float around a little bit, um, but I just know some members have a hard stop at 5 o'clock. Okay, I'll try to make it brief. No, uh, in our last local election, uh, the overriding uh, issue, and it's, it's a voting or vote out of office issue, uh, was traffic and uh, congestion. Uh, so. We know you, but you should probably, for others, identify. Okay, I'm uh, Tom O'Dell. I'm counselor for the city of San Amish in Washington, one of your uh, supporting suburbs. But the uh, uh, the issues, there are a number of facets here. One is uh, what can be done quickly. And when we look at technology, everyone's talking about, you know, sky blue stuff 10, 15, 20 years in the future. My orders are not going to be that patient. 
So we also need to look at what can technology do for us today to make the current system work more efficiently. Uh, things like the intelligence, uh, intelligent uh, transportation system, computerized light coordination, identify choke points, clear them jump legs, that type of thing for buses. Uh, the uh, another thing I want to—it's really not a question, Peter, so much as supporting what you said before. Uh, I think the latest uh, Puget Sound Regional Council, or NPO, is by 2050, that 1 million goes to about 1.4 million on a base of 3.6 million. Uh, so you get the idea of the magnitude of the problem. But more importantly, to your to the issue, getting back to the issue of value analysis or whatever we call it, part it's not only what can be brought into the community, it's what can be retained in the community. Two examples. Boeing has a major parts production effort down in Auburn, which is on the south side of Seattle. Their major assembly points are five miles north of that and then another twenty-five miles north of Everett. There are two ways to get there, I-405 and I-5. When I first worked for Boeing, we were trucking parts up at all hours of the day, but now doing it at 3 a.m., I think. Uh, number two, and, and if that is not fixed somehow, Boeing may well relocate and take a whole bunch of highly paid manufacturing jobs with it. Number two, Port of Seattle is having a hard time getting truck traffic, container traffic, through to the port. As the downtown makes its I-90, it's the whole nine yards. So, to your point, these are, it's not only growth, it's keeping what you're already in. Thank you. Well, two quick thoughts. These are sort of sharing Puget Sound more with the broader community here. Uh, we do a lot of things in the Puget Sound, and we do them in extraordinarily close proximity to one another, which is part of what Tom is talking about. So, in terms of where we have major manufacturing, our port infrastructure, at least in the port of Seattle, you're not going to find a major seaport of that size in such close proximity to the heart of downtown. And that's why, like, the location of a new basketball arena, if we're ever going to get the NBA back, has become a holy war in the region over, over the availability of movement for uh, port traffic versus, versus others. I totally agree. It's one of the things that people are concerned about when we talk about introducing transit. And it's not just about retaining the job infrastructure. It's also retaining the community as they know it. Quality of life. Right? Quality of life, exactly. The fact that you can still like own a home on a fixed income and, and your mother uh, can still maintain her home adjacent, you know, near to where, you, where you're raising your own kids, right? You talked about um, early projects and what early technologies. One, I think... Um, I'm very enamored with. I really want to work with WashDOT and the Federal Highway Administration on it. It is part of the Sound Transit 3 plan. It's just using the existing shoulder as a bus-only lane. It is something that is actually funded as a project out in your way out moving toward Issaquah. Um, but with just a little bit of investment in new sensors that you can put in the roadway and in the cabs of the buses, you can pretty well ensure the safety of operating in the shoulder. Um, and that's something that, you know, the taxpayers have already paid to build that shoulder. And maybe we need to do some striping, maybe we need to do a little bit of widening. But that's a cheap piece of work, frankly, to get a throughput of another lane exclusively for transit. Those, you know, with a little bit of technology, not very advanced technology at that. So that's, that's the example I throw out there. All right. 
So if you don't mind, if you don't mind joining me in giving our panel um, a round of applause.